good to be here this morning. Uh, as John said, my name's Aaron. Uh, I'm based up in uh, our sister sites in Ashley Road. And uh, I, I realised actually while John was doing the news, I think the last time that I was here to preach was just before we were starting another Alpha. So it's almost as though you get me in as like an audition as to whether to, to send your friends. So um, it was a fairly small Alpha last, last time. I won't read too much into that. But... Um, but, <laughs> but it's good to be with you this morning anyway. So, um, even those of you that don't know me, it should hopefully uh, come as, as no surprise to, to discover that, that I'm a Christian. Uh, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a shock. And, and, and also, as a Christian, one thing that I do is I read the Bible, more than occasionally as well. Again, you shouldn't be too surprised by any of these things, but anybody here who reads the Bible, or anybody who's, who's ever read the Bible, will agree with me that sometimes, when you read it, you can come away quite shocked by what you read. Because, of course, in the Bible there are some pretty harrowing things that happen, that, that, that we see what people will do to each other when they're left to their own devices. The Old Testament, in particular, is, in parts, pretty gruesome. And even in the New Testament, where we read about Jesus and we read uh, the narrative around his crucifixion, it can be pretty graphic. The Bible is a pretty shocking book. But if you don't read the Bible, you'll be pleased to learn that it's not all like that. That actually there are some parts of the Bible that seem relatively tame. There's no kind of blood or guts in them. And actually you can even read them to your children. But actually... It's often in these passages, the passages that seem, like I say, pretty tame, that you can experience the true shock factor that the Bible holds. Because blood, guts, war, atrocities, to us it's not actually very shocking at all, is it? We see it on the news every single day. And in fact, most of the films and the box sets that we watch are kind of centered around this stuff. And it's exactly a passage like this, a passage that, that maybe you'd read and you'd think little of that we're going to be looking at today. But it's a passage that, when reflected on, reveals the true shock of the gospel. So could you turn with me to the book of James? Uh, we're at chapter 3, verse 13, which will be on page 717 of the Black Bibles under your chairs. So page 717, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not, want, do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So, it's quite a long passage. Should have warned you in advance. But while I was reading it, I didn't actually hear too many audible gasps among you. So what is it that in there is so shocking because I think most people whether whether you're a Christian or, or not you probably read that and say well it's pretty much what I expect from the Bible follow God's way not your own be peace, peaceable not quarrelsome don't be jealous of others be humble don't judge others trust in God there's nothing too shocking in there is there it would probably I suppose come as more of a surprise if I'd read something else out but I'll tell you where the shock factor comes in. Certainly where it comes in for me is when you read this passage as a mirror to reflect it against our lives and reflect it against the society that we live in. Not when you read it comparing it to your ideals, the things that you kind of wish were true, because then you can read it and it's really easy to nod in agreement. But when you reflect on this passage against your actions against your deeper thoughts, your deeper motives, it's then that this becomes shocking. Where it sets out two types of wisdom, one which is godly and good, and another which is described as worldly and demonic. There's no grayness between these two statements. They are absolute. It tells us here that God's wisdom is in polar opposition to the perceived wisdom of the culture that, that this was written to and the, the culture that we're immersed in. Like I say, on face value, it's easy to read this passage and say, yeah, that's right, I agree with everything that says. But it can be far more difficult to say that you agree with this when you look at your actions in the light of it. Ask yourself, when all is said and done, 
where do you put your wisdom? Is it in, in godly wisdom, which is good, or is it in worldly wisdom, in human wisdom, which is described here as demonic? So just a couple of questions that I ask myself, and, and maybe you could ask yourselves. If you've got kids, do you spend more time praying for their salvation, or do you spend more time in helping them to do well at school? Is your security found in the knowledge of God's goodness, or is it in your pension pot and and hopefully diminishing mortgage? Do you care more about your own personal happiness, your own personal comfort, than you do about God's glory? Because this is the crux of it. This is the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. As it says in the tin, worldly wisdom centers around the world, around creation. Perhaps most notably, it centers around the pinnacle of creation, which is man. We like worldly wisdom because it centers around me. But godly wisdom is, of course, concerned with God, with the creator, with the heart of creation, which is Jesus. Godly wisdom takes me out of the equation and focuses on him. And we see in this passage this morning the fruit of these two types of wisdom. Worldly wisdom leads to jealousy and selfish ambition. As you focus inwards and you either step on others to get ahead or else you become full of self-pity as you look at those around you and what they've got or your friends or maybe people on Facebook that you haven't seen for 15 years and you think, wow, their life is so much better than mine. But godly wisdom is described as pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of godly wisdom may not be money, it might not be status, it might not even be earthly happiness, but rather the promise that we're given here is a harvest of righteousness, which again, when you think about it, is quite surprising, isn't it? Because if you ask people, you can have any wish that you want. What is it that you want or or what is it you need? Now, the poorest people in the world would probably say, I want shelter, I I want food, I want safety for my family. Maybe here in the West, we'd say, I want a billion pounds. I want my dream job, or or I I want my own island, or something like that. But of course, as well, there's, there's, there's always the smart Alec, maybe like John, who would say, you can have any wish. What wish do you want? More wishes. Ah, there you go. More wishes. See, I knew John would say that. It's this shirt. I think we're kind of in tune. Because this is, this is what worldly wisdom tells us that we need. We need food, we need shelter, we need safety, and then once we've got that, we need stuff. But James is saying here that our greatest need, the one thing that we require above all other things, is none of these things. The one thing that we need is righteousness. To be declared in a position of right and just standing before God, which of course makes full sense. You can have all the riches in the world, and if you're not a Christian, then please just indulge me for a second, but if you're not in a right standing with God, who has eternal dominion over all things, then all your stuff will count for very little. Equally, right here and now, you might have nothing, 
But if you are regarded by this very same God, then surely that will prove to be of far more worth than any amount of material treasures. So we need to be righteous before God. But how do we achieve this? We read in the second half of verse 6 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now again here, we've got an extremely polarizing statement. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Not only is it polarizing, but again, it goes entirely against the grain of modern thinking. Because of course, we like to tip our hats to the humble, don't we? And say, it's a good thing, good thing to be humble. It's better to be humble than it is to be proud. But actually, that's not really what the world teaches us, is it? Certainly the world that I live in says that to be humiliated, to be seen as less than others, is shameful. It's anything but a good thing. The world that I live in tells me that humility is failure, that I should be raising myself out of my current position, whatever that is, to achieve as much as I can, to be successful. And often, in the world that we live in, a person's success is judged by the three vices of money, sex, and power. What's your salary? How's your business doing? Are you attractive? Who are you sleeping with? When did you last get promoted? How much respect do people have for you? These are the things that the world aspires to above all else. These are the things that puff people up with pride. And as a Christian, for those of us that are, it is so difficult not to be sucked into this way of thinking because it's blinding. We're immersed in it. But we see here, we see in the life of Jesus that if we are to follow him, we're called into such humility and then we receive grace. But if we choose pride, we read that God opposes us, which is, at the very least, an interesting choice of words. James doesn't just say that being proud is good, sorry, that being proud is not good, and that being humble is better. Rather, he said that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is another one of those decisive, polarizing statements. There's no shades of gray. He either opposes or he gives grace. In God's eyes, therefore, you are either considered humble or you are considered proud. Either you receive grace, which is is God's unearned favor, or you're in a position of enemy, of opposition against God. It even uses the term, you're his enemy. So where is the heart of the dividing line between the humble and the proud? Well, I think it's best put in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 3. And I'm going to just, just read a, a, a very short passage from the New Living Testament um, because I think it, uh, translation, sorry, because it puts it perfectly. So don't turn there with me. But it says this God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The humble are those that recognize their need for a Savior, that recognize their need. For Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, if you're not a Christian, this is, this is mental. This is foolishness. You're trying to tell me that I need to stop chasing after all the things that I want, all the things that I need, money, sex, power, whatever. And I need to put my faith into a guy that was crucified 2,000 years ago. 
And it's easy to think as well, well, maybe 2,000 years ago, they were kind of almost cavemen, a bit more gullible, perhaps, than we are now, a bit more basic. Well, that's not true, because actually, if you turn with me to, to the, the book of 1 Corinthians, verse 18, I haven't taken a note of the page number, so uh, if anybody could check that out, that would be helpful. 1 Corinthians, uh, oh, that would be really helpful. I'll read it and listen along. (laughs) Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, it is, verse 18. Sorry? Page 617. I'll write that down for next time. So, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, page 617. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It doesn't just sound foolish to us right now. The message of the cross, the message that Jesus died to pay for our sins, to reconcile us with God, has always sounded foolish. Even then. This is the difference between worldly and godly wisdom. The worldly wise think that they can save themselves with lives filled with money, sex and power as part of maybe a thriving humanity that's pushing back the boundaries and discovering new stuff. It's easy to believe, you know, we're doing well. But actually, as Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, all go to one place, all came from the dust and all return to dust. Which is why godly wisdom tells us we need a saviour. Sure, we can fill our lives with lots of happy moments. We might even be able to extend our lives by 5, 10, 20 years. But from the moment we're born, we're perishing. Does the cross seem foolish? Yes, at first glance it certainly does. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And 2,000 years ago... Jesus, God himself, came in weakness and like a fool was nailed to the cross. Why? Because our sin, which is rooted in pride, that is, it's a desire to put ourselves above God, which is absurd. This sin separates us from God. And because he is just, because he is righteous, he can't just let it slide. It has to be dealt with which is why we need a saviour. This is why we need Jesus to take the punishment at the cross. And in order to receive this, we need the humility to recognise our need 
for salvation. We need to put our faith in Jesus. But this also means that if you're not a Christian, then you've put yourself in a place of opposition to God. Or maybe you are a Christian, but you've got friends, you've got family members, just as I have, who aren't Christians. Again, this passage tells us that they're in opposition, indeed enemies of God. And when you think about it, to be an enemy of God isn't really a good thing, is it? To be opposed to the one that's got dominion over all things is probably the most dire situation you could find yourself in. And it's a pretty offensive statement, isn't it? If you don't believe this, then God opposes you. It's fairly unpopular as an icebreaker at dinner parties, so I've stopped using it. But just because it's offensive, just because it's unpopular, doesn't mean that it's not true. So if you are offended by that comment, then you've got a choice as to what to do with your offence. If you're not a Christian, then you can, of course, say, well, I don't believe it anyway, so I'm not going to be offended by it, and I'm not going to worry about it. Or you might decide to get angry and build up a kind of hatred towards this God that you, you don't believe in. And I, I mean, I meet a surprising number of people who have got a burning rage against God, while at the same time they kind of deny his existence. It's an option. Or the third option is to consider that maybe, just maybe, this is true. To assess whether worldly wisdom, whether pride, whether living a life that is mainly about you is really working for you. To have the humility to accept that ultimately, in the light of eternity, you might just need a saviour. Because even if you're doing really well right now, it will all come to an end at some point. Which should be a warning to us who are Christians here too. Our friends, our family, those who don't know Jesus, despite appearances, are not getting on fine without Jesus. It can look like that, it can feel like that, but the truth is, they, like us, are perishing. We need to see them, not through the lens of worldly wisdom, rather we need to see them with the eyes of God, in desperate need of salvation, in desperate need of God's grace. And we need to realize just how shocking God's incredible grace is towards us. We don't receive it because we're good or because we're better than anybody else. Quite the opposite. We receive it because we know that we're not. It's not open just for good people, for those that are shining beacons in the community. That Jesus, God himself, that he would become man, that he would be despised, that he would be shamed, that he would be beaten, that he would be murdered on a cross, that is shocking enough. That he would do it for the very worst in our society is an affront. Jesus didn't just die to save those who think they're good enough to save themselves. He died for those who know that they're not. We only receive his grace if we recognize our need for it, and, 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 and we all need it. Romans 3.23 says this, All have sinned, all have fallen short 
of the glory of God. Grace is ours if and only if we recognize that we've got nothing to bring. Because if we don't recognize this, if we think that we've earned our way before God, then actually we're in a place of pride, which as we've seen, puts us in opposition to God. And not only this, but if we've truly received grace, then our lives should reflect it. Let's turn back to the passage in James, pick it up at verse 11 to see what this looks like. So it's page 717 again, please. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, sorry, who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As I said, grace, by its very nature, is unearned. Now, this isn't a list of instructions from James saying, in order to receive grace, you've got to do this stuff. Rather, he's showing them how we should respond to the grace that we've received. So what does he say? Well, firstly, be careful what you say, how you speak. Speak well of each other. This means that, that, that we as Christians, we're not to gossip. We're, we're, we're not particularly to, to, to maybe um, exaggerate what somebody's done to us if, if they've upset us. And it says that we're to do this to people, whether they're brothers or whether they're neighbors. Brothers are those in the church, which of course is not a place where we should be bad-mouthing each other because the church itself is a community that reflects the kingdom of God. And neighbors, well, they're anybody else. Because we have been forgiven, because we have been shown grace, we're to show this to everybody that we come into contact with, to serve those around us, even if they're hostile towards us, even if they feel like the last thing but neighbors. And we've got to be careful what we put on social media as well. Anybody who's friends with me on Facebook will know that I've fallen foul of this. I think everybody has maybe said something or, 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 or done something on social media that, that you wouldn't maybe do in real life. So we should ask ourselves, am I going to offend anyone with what I post? Or maybe, do we get ourselves into needless arguments on Facebook? Say, taking a tone or saying things that put other people down. Again, this doesn't reflect the grace that God has given us. Okay, back to the passage, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We're not to be presumptuous about anything, even good things. For example, you may have a desire and you may feel called by God to go planting a church. That's a good and it's a godly thing. And if this is the case, then it's also a good thing to make plans of faith. But as it says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Certainly not boasting of the things that you're going to do next year. We must remember our frailty. 
Normally, ignorance is, is seen as a bad thing, but when making plans for the future, we should embrace it. The fact of the matter is, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Sometimes, things happen that we don't expect, that quite frankly, don't make sense. They may seem unfair, they may seem wrong to us. It may feel as though God either isn't in control, he doesn't exist, or he doesn't know what he's doing. And we've got a choice here. We can either get frustrated, and we can get bitter about it, or we can let these events breed humility within us. Which is actually the crux of it. God, in calling us to live lives in humble obedience to him, is not doing this as a punishment for receiving grace. God isn't looking down going, I've been so kind to them, they had better be contrite and sniveling. Because sometimes it can, it can feel like that, can't it? Is that, is that why we've got to be humble? Because he's been so kind. It's the opposite. That we can live lives of humility is a part of God's grace towards us. Because we can be humble in the knowledge that God's grace raises us to a status that we don't deserve. Living humbly doesn't mean we have to feel inferior to others. Rather, we should seek to serve them so that they too can know God's grace. And we can do so confident that he is in control, knowing that in the light of eternity, that it is his plan that is perfect and not ours. Let's pray.